Um, but I think um, reading the poem this time, I was aware of how easily we fool ourselves because phrases seem so simple and contraries and oppositions seem so simple, but I, I think there's something going on in this poem and it speaks, I, I really believe, pretty directly to King Lear and also to uh, Boethius' still point. And I, I'm, not, I'm not kidding right now, a, a joy leaps in my heart saying that to you guys because I know you've read Boethius and you know what the still point is. I can say that with some sense that you will see some things that lots of people won't see. So anyway, I want to I want to I want to give it a minute. I want to see if we get um if 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 Tracy shows up because I know she's in um from what she said that she seemed to feel this and I um I she I sent a um her email on to you guys, didn't I the comment she made on Lear? God bless. She wrote a comment um, last week saying that she got it, that she'd been haunted by that question that I asked about um, the Heath and what it was. Um, I'll send you her comment because it was a wonderfully sensitive response. She was just making sense of what the Heath community was doing and saw it so well. And it's as if the whole place sort of unfolded for her and I was glad for that because you know for the first couple of meetings on Lear, she was saying, <laughs> I can't remember her words, but it was gobbledygook, gobbledygook that all the, gook. huh? Gobbledygook. Yeah, gobbledygook that she just, they're just words. Um, but suddenly there was this great clarity. So I'll give, let's just give this a minute or more. And then, and if, she, if um, she doesn't show or any of the other people don't show, we're going to start. Um, <clears throat> You guys doing well? Have you guys all had your shots? Yes. Fred, Fred oh yeah, I know you did. Barbara, did you? Did you have your shot? Both of them? I did, both. Did yes. any of you guys have Ill, Ill effects on the second shot? We've heard that the second, no? No. Yeah. I had some problems, but not major. I, it was on a Friday, and boy, Friday night, I just didn't do anything. I felt bad. Saturday, I was fine. Yeah. yeah. My son had trouble with the second shot. He was, for several days, he was sick. But he had Moderna. I had Pfizer. I don't know if that makes a big difference or if it's just some people respond or react and some people don't. I, I don't know. Do you know, I, I'm so in the dark. I, I wasn't even aware that, that it was anything to be concerned about until we got some notice that um, the Pope or the Bishop had had written a letter asking everybody to be aware that if they had a choice and could avoid using the Johnson and Johnson they should because the Johnson and Johnson had been using um, parts from abortions and I didn't know that. Do you know how they how it was set up so that people would go to one shot or another? Did people have choices when they were people even no. aware? No. Yeah. I don't so. Yeah. Um I I think the places who could who had uh freezing capability usually got the Pfizer. 
because I think that needed to be kept colder. Is that the case? I don't I, that's right. what I heard. I'm not positive. Although one of the places I went had freezing capability. I got the Pfizer, but others got Moderna at, at UT Southwestern, and that's where I went. And I had it early on. There was no choice of Johnson & Johnson. <laughs> You're right. I but had both got both Moderna and, and Pfizer. Yeah. I went to Baylor um, in downtown Dallas, so I did not drive. You, everybody was safe. <laughs> Somebody drove me. Okay, let's 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 start. Let's start. Any any prayer requests tonight? Boy, I hope everybody's okay. This is a small group here tonight. Yeah. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. to say thank you Lord for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself this morning um, it's um, Lerdete if I'm saying that right week it's a week of joy that um, that <sighs> it's a time in Lent where we're asked to take a joy in giving up the world, and more importantly, for knowing that um, that what we're doing is in response to God loving us so much that He sent His Son to die for us. That was the reading this weekend that God so loved us. Whatever our faults, whatever our failings, whatever our weaknesses, whatever our sins, He didn't come here because we were good. He came because He loved us and asked us to love Him the same or others the same way. So here at this midpoint in Lent, we're asked to continue in our work of disciplining ourselves, to work at seeing ourselves, the depth of our sins, not to despair, not to despair or show how smart we are, but um, to grow in our gratitude that with sins as deep as our own, our God still loved us. And we're asked to bring that to what we do. The reading, I think the last couple of days this weekend, was Christ saying he came to fulfill the law, every iota of it. And so, at least for me, there's this particular um, light um, in the Gospels this week that God so loved us that he sent his son but he still calls us to live his commandments, to be just, to fulfill every iota of the law, not to let ourselves off, but to bring his love to what we do, to get ourselves out of the way. So at this point, midway point, Christ, strengthen us, please, in our efforts to do that, particularly now because it means entering into a graver darkness, um, a much darker dark. Um, help us to have the courage to enter it, to not be afraid, knowing we can't do it without your light anyway. Um, that there's a great gift in seeing it because um, we're so much more grateful for all that you've done given our sins. So strengthen us at this midpoint to carry on with what we're doing and, and grow in gratitude. 
um, for all you're doing. I ask a special blessing for all those that we know in our church community, um, Don and Mary Ann, um, um, Mary Rosemary, Rose um, Cecilia, Nikki, um, I think even, I mean, several people have been struggling with difficulties, um, even Tracy. Um, and most particularly tonight, um, Tom's sister, Carol, who died this afternoon. Um, um, it, it's been a painful two weeks for her and a, um, and a troubled couple of weeks for Tom and Linda. Receive Tom's sister into your kingdom. Wash away her sins. Let our prayers be a help. That's what we do as a church. Um, um, she doesn't know us. What a great gift to have people praying for us that don't know us. It's humbling. Wash away her sins. Receive her into joy. There's a time in purgatory. Um, let our prayers speed her, help her. And be with Tom and Linda in whatever decisions they make, whether they're going to travel to go to a funeral or remain here. But ease their hearts and let this be a time of the two of them growing in our, in our faith. Um, we offer these prayers, Christ, um, in your name, our Lord. Amen. Okay, can everybody pull out Ash Wednesday? Do you have a copy for me? Do you have it? I don't have it. Is it in there? Can you take hold? Um... Last time we met, I asked if all of you would take a look at those opening dependent clauses. The whole first section is grammatically a little bit puzzling because so many of the lines begin with dependent clauses. And I asked if, every, if everybody would um, fill in the blanks, supply your own independent clause, because the, the dependent clause is contingent. It's dependent on that thought, whatever it is. So, before we start, I'd like to, I'd like to just see what you come up with. It, I, I think you're going to find in, I mean, maybe not, maybe some of you saw this. I, I think that those opening stanzas are terribly confusing. Um, they seem simple, but I don't think they are. But, but I'd just like to know if any of you came up with something. Do you have it, Doc? Yes. What do you guys have? <clears throat> Like, hey guys, remember we talked about this, you know? Yeah. Like, and he was like, no, I totally understand what you're saying. Uh, so is that the guy that offered you the job, the district manager? No, so the store manager is the one who offered me the job, and the store manager is the one who Where are we? That offered a letter came in, and it was Who's, who's talking? Uh, and he said, and he said, oh, no, no, that's wrong. Where? Let me call the district manager and figure out how we fix it. I, and then I'm going to mute everybody for a minute because I don't know what's going on, and then I may click off and come back. I'm going to click off and come back, you guys, because that what that was obviously somebody from outside the group, wouldn't you say? I, I, 
the voice sounded familiar, and then I, I'll be right back. I'll be right back. Hope we don't lose everybody. Can you guys hear me okay? I can't hear you. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you guys? We can't hear you, Bob. You're mute. Okay. Yeah, we can hear you, Fred. Okay, I can hear you. Okay, I just, I turned it on. Okay, we can hear you. Um, and Good. those of those of you who were in the store or home or wherever you were, um, glad to have you join us group if, if you know what we're about and want to join us, but... Let, let me. Let, do you all have? Um, you all have the poem. What did you guys come up with for a for an independent clause? Oh, that's wrong. We should do that. Fred, go ahead. Well, at at the risk of seeing Boethius and everything, <laughs> as, as I as I read through this thing, I, I kept looking at someone who is refusing to do that list of things that we we talked about um, you know like well just for example like um, desiring the man's gift and that man's scope um, the why should why should I mourn banished power of the usual reign I just, I, it, it looked to me like he was almost going down through the list that Lady Philosophy put out there of all the things that could take you from what you should really be focused on. And I got the image of someone refusing to do all of those things. But you know me, I'm starting to see Boethius everywhere, so. <laughs> That's not a bad thing because he is everywhere. He is everywhere. That's... I've tried to explain it to about four people, and it's been not always successful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what kind of came to my mind. Yeah. By the way, just, I mean, I'm, I'm enjoying this, Fred, because if anybody understood that well, they'd understand that it's a universal principle. It's why Eliot uses the still point in, in Four Quartets, but... It is everywhere. Um, okay, I'm going to ask what to me are some really, really tough questions here because, wait, before we go, anybody, anybody else with a, Fred, didn't, Fred, you didn't give me an independent clause. Can you give me one? Um, well, boy, that's hard to do. Um, let me try to pick one. So, so because I... I do not hope to turn again um, because I now see the still point, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Anybody else? Boy, I'm so tried, so tried. Sorry that Tracy isn't here. Nobody? Here's Tracy's answer, and I think it's absolutely right on. Um, um, I can't remember her exact words, but what she was saying is, I'm surrendering to Christ. So let me just read it that way, and, and then I want to nuance it a little bit. 
Um, um, I'm going to add to what she said um, because to me there's an important distinction between the first and second stanzas. Because if you look at the first one, it's I do not hope to turn, it's an action of the will. And because I do not hope to know, um, because I do not think, because I know I shall not know, the, se the actions of the second are all in terms of knowing. So I think, I think the independent clause would go something like this. For the first stanza, it would be, I surrender my will to Christ and his church because I do not hope to turn again. Second stanza, because I do not hope to know again, I surrender my mind. Or you could reverse them. You could say, because I do not hope to turn again, I surrender my will to Christ. I, give, I surrender to him. Because I do not hope to know, I surrender my mind to him as well that the poem is about that moment when you surrender yourself to Christ. So one of, the, one of the questions that I would have is, why does Eliot leave those independent clauses out? But now before I go there, I've got this question, because it seems to me it goes to something so much deeper than what the surface suggests. Eliot is not saying, and I want everybody to pay close attention here, this is crucial. Eliot is not saying, because I, I hope not to turn, because we all know that hope is a good thing. According to our faith, we believe that faith, hope, and charity are supernatural virtues. Right? Are you all here? Is everybody with me? Hope is a great, it's a gift from God. Faith and love are gifts from God. They're not from us. We cannot give those gifts to ourselves. They're supernatural in nature. To love at the expense of ourself is a gift from God. To have faith when we have no reason to have faith is a gift from God. To hope when there's no reason to hope is a gift for God. Those are supernatural. He does not say, because I hope not to turn again. He does not say that. Hope is a positive thing. So to say, because I do, because I do not, because I hope not to turn again, is saying I hope I won't do this again. But he doesn't say that. He says, because I do not hope to turn again, because I do not hope, because I do not hope to turn, desiring this and that, the vanished out power, the use of rain, and again, because I do not hope to know again. Hope is a good thing, but he's saying, because I do not hope to know again, because I do not think, because I know I shall not know the one veritable transitory power, because I cannot drink. And he introduces that cannot. Um, what's he saying? Does everybody see the difference that I'm making here? He's not saying because I hope not to do something, he's saying, because I do not hope, it's as if he's turning against supernatural virtue, because I do not hope to turn against, what's he saying? Karen, I know you're there. Are you there? Are you, I thought you were there. Sue, Sue, what okay, do you make? So if I'm doing this, thinking this correctly, 
he is the one who is not doing something. He is not hoping. So the onus is on him. He, he does not hope. Rather than something happening to him, he is not doing something he should be doing. Carl, you got a thought on this? Looks like you're... Where did all the pictures go? Why are you guys all disappearing tonight? There's Carl. Carl, what do you got? Um, I'd like you to go over it again and get it to not be a semantics thing to me. Because the placement of where the words are is what you're talking about, correct? Partly, yeah. Because that defines what's going on. Are you not hoping or are you not doing? Right. If you could paraphrase the first or second stanza, how would you paraphrase? What would you say? How would you describe what's going on? I would describe it as a self-reflective um, review or assessment that for forces us to put ourselves in that position rather than someone else. It really kind of takes me out of my seat and puts me on the page or wherever, saying, okay, I'm here. Now, it's about me. The I in there is me. So yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. Try again about that, that I do not hope or I hope and not. What I'm, what I'm, what I think he's doing, stay with me for a minute because this is going to take a minute if, to get this through. Fred, where'd you go? Are we losing you? We, we've lost your picture? Are you, okay. okay. I think what he's doing, wait, Eliot lives in a world, in a post-Christian world, in which all of the Christian virtues are no longer lived, even though they have become a part of our lives and our vocabulary. So people use the word hope. I hope I get a, hi Julie, I hope I get a bike for Christmas. I hope I get a car. Or I have faith in you. Suzanne, or I have faith in you, Robert. I hope everybody can see that what we've done in our post-Christian world is, t is take transcendent virtues and temporalize them, brought them down, made them worldly. So we've accommodated them to a world. So when Eliot is saying, because I do not hope to turn again, I think he's saying, and it goes to, I think, Fred, to your point, um, that um, because I do not hope to turn again, he spent too much of his life hoping for this or that or even for God and constantly failing because he's turning. He's a part of that Boethius's wheel, you know, constantly spinning up and down, turning this way and then that. Um, so it's placed him in a, in a, at a point, like the still point, between two worlds. Um, and, and it's at this point, I think, that he's talking about something, in a sense, greater than hope. Because I do not hope to turn again. That is, he's not going to give, or he, because he does not hope to be in, to position himself in a world in which he's always turning with his will, desiring one thing, another, and also doing that with his mind, because I do not hope to know again. 
Now watch what he does with those two verbs, doing, willing, and knowing. Um, I no longer strive to strive towards such things. Why should I mourn the vanished power of the usual reign? Because every reign, Biden's, Trump's, Obama, doesn't matter, is going to at some point vanish. Whoever's in control will be gone. Because I do not hope to know again the infirm glory of the positive hour. How many of us have had moments when we felt particularly close to Christ, close to Christ, and then suddenly, 24 hours later, gone? I think all of us have had moments, I think, I, I know I have, I'm sure all of us have, where you feel particularly virtuous. It's like you know what it means to be normal. You just you don't feel the weight of your sins. And four hours later, gone. So he's at that point where he recognizes that those spiritual virtues, faith, hope, and charity, are at work, but they're too temporalized. Um, so what he's talking about is, is that surrender to God that, that I believe is like St. John's dark night of the soul. He's positioning us in a way where we're looking at the world and in that dark night where it means surrendering everything. The closest that I can get to this is Christ with Pilate when he's saying nothing. Or in the garden when he says your will. When Christ, who's God, has surrendered... He, he's, I mean, which one of us could do that? He's in front of Pilate. He's being accused of something he didn't do. He's doing it for us. It's a complete surrender. And he says on the cross, um, what is it? Why are you why are you doing this or what? Forgive them, they know not what they do. Oh no. No, no. Um, if you can take this off me, do it. That's in the garden. In the garden. Um, that, that that trust in the Father, he has to go through with something. Asking the Father not to, unless it's his will. So, there is a kind of surrender that takes us beyond the kind of casual way we use our Christian faith. I believe, I hope. We all have these moments. You go to these spiritual retreats, you say your rosary reads, you say your prayers. It's, it's not as if he's demeaning them. He's not. But he is recognizing that something else that is can only be determined can only be described in terms of what the church knows as the via negativa, the way of negation. And if that isn't clear, let me remind you of this. The whole of divine comedy is, an af is a way of uh, affirmation of images. Dante's is the way of affirmation by images. This is how you get to God. But the assumption behind the whole comedia, this way of affirmation, is the via negativa. Dante had to lose everything, absolutely everything. His home, he was in exile, he wrote out of a, of a condition of having lost everything, or he could never have done what he did with the Commedia. So that still point image of, of uh, Boethius is that point in which you face the world with all of its affirmations, all of its good, I mean particularly if we have a Christian faith and you're trying to live your faith, where all those words are pointing towards the world and they're also pointing towards a darkness with an entirely different meaning. So, 
Um, because I do not hope to know again the infirm glory of the positive hour, those moments when we th- they're positive, but they're gone. Because I know I shall not know the one veritable transitory power. What is that one veritable transitory power? It's that moment when transit, veritable means truth. It's the truth of that moment, but it's also fleeting. Because we're all living here. I, I, I want to put this as strongly as I can because I, I thought Father Sojourn in this weekend um, did it well because he was taking that text from John where he said, the God, the Father, so loved us that he sent his Son. It didn't matter what our sins were, our failings, our weaknesses. He still loved us. Christ had to go across. He had to go into the darkness to answer those sins. So I think Eliot is, is, is standing at that point. He's entering the church. He's looking to the world, aware of how he's turning, even in matters of faith, turning to Christ, turning back to look at himself. And what is actual is actual only for one time and only for one place. I rejoice that things are as they are. What is there to do? A priest, I, I said, a priest once said this to Suzanne, it really changed her life. The church says, always and everywhere be grateful. Boethius says, there's no bad fortune. It doesn't matter what goes on, even if it means we have to go into a darkness. God's there. He's never not there. And only for one place. I rejoice that things are as they are, and I renounce the blessed face and renounce the voice. Well, I think whether he's looking at Christ in church or somebody in the world. Because he knows that there... In fact, we're going to get there with Lear at the very end. Just when Lear thinks... he Remember when he's at the beach with um, Cordelia? They're captured. It looks like all the miseries are over. He says, let's fly away as birds. And he doesn't know yet. There's, there's one more thing ahead of him. Yet more painful. I renounce the blessed voice, renounce the voice, because I cannot hope to turn again. Consequently, I rejoice having to construct something upon which to rejoice. I think it's that moment of... Artists face this, I think, all the time, when you you find your inspiration out of a darkness. Something comes to you. It's not because you already got everything planned, but I'm going to do this. It's like living in a mystery, and out of it comes something good. I mean, I'm sure, Jolie, you, you know, aren't there moments when, I hope I'm not presuming here, that suddenly a song comes to you out of nowhere, and, and one of your responses is, I didn't know it was there two minutes ago, or five minutes ago, or last week, but it came from somewhere. Where did it come from? How do you describe that thing except that darkness? So... Part of the beauty, I think, of Ash Wednesday is Eliot is situating us between these two worlds where we take supernatural virtues, faith, hope, and charity, and don't use them well. In the four quartets, Bumery said, I will not hope, um, because hoping is hoping for the wrong thing. We will do that when we do Eliot again. But too often we take those supernatural virtues and we use them for ourselves when they're gifts from God that are meant to take us into something we don't see very well. So 
look what happens at the end of the third stanza, because I cannot hope to turn again, consequently I rejoice, having to construct something upon which to rejoice. What does he say immediately after that? And pray to God to have mercy upon us. Because whatever we do while we live here, we will never love the way Christ did. He was God. However good we get at loving, however close we approach the saints, we're not Christ. Um, We're called to love like him. We will bear our sins. We will stand in the darkness. That's where we are in Lent, you know, in the darkness, looking with the world, but looking at the still point to another world as well. I almost hesitate to do that. because I, I, That's what's going on at the end of Lear. Um, we'll get to it in a second. Anyway, does um, um, any... I'm, I'm going to... Um, I want to... I want to just... Um, we, we didn't read the second section yet, right? We just read the first section? Because we didn't meet last week. Okay, let me. I'm going to read the second section now, and the third section, and and um, I'm going to leave them without comment, so we can get on to Lear. Any any comments or questions about that first section and how important it is, and what Eliot's getting at? Don't forget, he's not saying because I hope not to turn again. He's not saying. He's, that's what most of us would say. I hope I don't turn again. I want to stay with Christ. He is not saying that. He says, because I do not hope to turn again. Because I do not hope. Because because in the world we have so compromised those virtues that Eliot is showing, moving us, I mean to use Carl's way of putting it, I think he's helping to move us in a a place of darkness where, like St. John of the Cross, We've got to learn that part of our way to Christ comes by giving up everything, by standing in a mystery, a darkness. Let me leave it there. Any thoughts or comments on that opening section? Because I think it's, it seems so easy in some ways. I, I, to me, it's profoundly deep. I'm sorry Tracy's not here because... She would, she would love this. She her, was her comment. Remember her, her independent clause was, "I surrender, I surrender to Christ because I do not hope to turn again. I surrender. I give my will to Him. I'm trusting all of us know how hard that is. Any, any questions or, Carl? You got a follow up on that? No. I figured that's why he said it, because it's too hard. I do not hope to turn again. Because <laughs> um, I, I have no hope in my ability to ever turn again. It's too hard. <laughs> you think that's... You think surrendering would be easier than that? Well, I figured if, you're, if you can do it once... <laughs> 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 Let's just go with this. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, gosh. Fred, any thoughts? No, I'm, I'm good. It would just go back to Boethius. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already making plans for a Christmas present for you. 
one of two of them. One of them is going to be marked Portia, <laughs> Portia, and Boethius. <laughs> if I was if I was going to read one reread one book of all the books that we've done, that would be the one. Okay, I'm going to read um, the two next one, and I'm only doing that because I want to catch up because we met at um, C's last week, and I want to try to keep current. So. In the second one, in the second section, Boethius, I mean, uh, Eliot is um, responding, making a salutation, addressing a woman. And um, the major images for this, um, we need to keep in mind, are, are biblical and, and literary. One of them is Beatrice, the woman. So I think the so many of these allusions go back to Dante. Dante is everywhere in Eliot's poetry. And the scripture readings are largely, they, there's a number of sources, but they're largely from the book of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel was called out as a prophet to prophes, um, prophecy to the Israelites, to, to show them, to, to speak to them in terms of their being dry bones, dead, because Israel had lost its way. And God speaks to Ezekiel and says, prophesy to them, prophesy to the wind. Um, and the Israelites listened and they were revitalized so they recovered their life they were restored to life so um, so the two images to keep in mind here are um, Beatrice leading Dante to God um, a Christ figure and um, the, the, the death that um, is a part of our lives that needs to be um, revitalized the, the images of the leopard, I think, are the and the juniper tree could be references to Isaiah, who fled to a juniper tree, and also Jonah with the gourd. The leopards are um, creatures who feast on. They were, um, they were seen as agents sent by God to devour evil. Um, so there's a number of images running through this that just be aware of them. And in the third section, I'm sure most of you felt it, there are all the allusions to the Divine Comedy because um, Eliot describes what's happening in terms of a stairway, turns in the stairway as he's going up, okay? <coughs> um, the only thing that I want to mention in the third stanza is that when he looks back and sees the same shape, it might be him in an earlier stage in the ascent up the stairway, okay? But those are the major images. The, the, the middle section of section two is clearly a reference to Mary in the beatific vision. If you remember Dante, when Dante arrived in the Imperium, the mystical rose, um, Mary was at the center of it. So she's the central figure drawing men to Christ. She's the one who brought them to the world, okay? So just with those, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave them with, without going into them at all because I want to get to Lear, but with those things in mind that they just might help you have some sense of what's going on. So in the second one, he's dealing with um, the, the vision in the valley of the dry bones and God's prophesying um, in a way that would bring Israel back to life. And in the third section, it's a purgatorial section where somebody's um, ascending the mountain, okay? Section two, lady, three, right leopard, three white leopards sat under a juniper tree in the cool of the day, 
having fed the satiety on my legs, my heart, my liver, and that which had been contained in the hollow round of my skull. The leopard here is a good. It's eating away the evil that's necessary for him to be born again, to live again. And God said, shall these bones live? Shall these bones live? And that which had been contained in the bones, which were already dry, said chirping, because of the goodness of this lady, and because of her loveliness, and because she honors the Virgin in meditation, we shine with brightness. It's always somebody else who brings us to God. Always somebody else. And I who am here dissembled, dismembered, proffer my deeds to oblivion and my love to the posterity of the desert and the fruit of the gourd. It is this which recovers my guts, the strings of my eyes, and the indigestible portions which the leopards reject. The lady is withdrawn in a white gown to contemplation in a white gown. Notice how that um, phrase stands out, to contemplation, in the middle of the sentence. Let the whiteness of bones atone to forgetfulness. There is no life in them. As I am forgotten and would be forgotten, so I would forget, thus devoted, concentrated in purpose. And God said, prophesy to the wind, to the wind only, for only the wind will listen. And the bones sang, chirping, with the burden of the grasshopper, saying, these are the bones. Lady of silences, calm and distressed. And notice the way this stanza unfolds through tensions. A little bit like oxymorons. Oppositions pulled together. Lady of silences, calm and distressed, torn and most whole. Rose of memory, rose of forgetfulness. Exhausted and life-giving, worried, reposeful. The single rose is now the garden where all loves end, terminate, torment, of love unsatisfied, the greater torment of love satisfied. There's that turning both ways again. Just, just when we think our love is what it should be, that we're okay, we may be in trouble because we may be missing something. You know, in the garden, so there's this distinction difference between divine love and carnal or earthly love. The single rose is now the garden where all loves end, terminate torment of love unsatisfied, the greater torment of love satisfied. End of the endless journey to no end, conclusion of all that is inconclusible, speech without end, and word of no speech, grace to the mother, for the garden where all loves end. Under a juniper tree the bones sang, scattered and shining. We are glad to be scattered. We did a little good to each other. Under a tree in the cool of the day, with a blessing of sand, forgetting themselves and each other, united in the quiet of the desert. This is the land which you shall divide by lot, and neither division nor unity matters. This is the land. We have our inheritance. Third section. At the first turning of the second stair, I turned and saw below the same shape twisted on the banister under the vapor in the fetid air struggling with the devil of the stairs 
who wears the deceitful face of hope and of despair. That's what he's facing in his ascent, both of them. The second turning of the second stair, I left them twisting, turning below. There were no more faces, and the stair was dark, damp, jagged, like an old man's mouth driveling beyond repair, or the toothed gullet of an aged shark. At the first turning of the third stair was a slotted window, bellied like the fig's fruit, and beyond the hawthorn blossom in a pasture scene, the broad black figure dressed in blue and green enchanted the maytime with an antique flute. Blown hair is sweet, brown hair over the mouth blown, lilac and brown hair. Distraction, music of the flute, stops and steps of the mind over the third stair, fading, fading, strength beyond hope and despair, climbing the third stair. Lord, I am not worthy. Lord, I am not worthy. But speak the word only. In the image of the Eucharist and the word, um, um, and the the implied connection between the words that we speak, or that he speaks, and the word himself. He is the source of all words. So um, I think, I mean, to try to put a phrase on all of this, it's, it's Eliot entering the church and standing and knowing that um, that part of his condition will be in a dark night of the soul, that no matter how much he thinks he knows God or things or will commit himself to doing what he wants, there will always be something beyond him. Um, he, he has to live doing what he does, committing himself, knowing that a large part of what he does involves the darkness, the dark night of the soul, that that's part of his journey to Christ. Let me stop with that. And <clears throat> any, <clears throat> any questions or comments? Anything to add to that? <clears throat> it's a beautiful poem, and it's really fitting to be doing it now in Lent, I think. Jeannie, what do you have to say about that? Are you leaving? Jeannie, come back here. <laughs> she coming back, Carl? I can't hear you, sorry. I'm not sure. Oh. She packed her computer, though. She what? She packed her computer. <laughs> um... Fred, go ahead. Or Francis, which one of you? Would... Just, just one last thought. I mean, as, as I go through at least those sections, it, it kind of brings to mind sort of the whole faith journey. That, you know, each, each staircase to me kind of reflected, you know, kind of the next tier of, you know, pretty much anyone's faith journey. You go through these different challenges and you try to rationalize things as you go along, or at least I I did do. And you know, there's 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 ultimately no rationalization or explanation that will ever satisfy all of the questions. But you just you keep climbing, keep keep reaching out to ultimately just get to to pure She's faith. The book on the chair, the big book. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
Yes, I agree. One of the telling in, um, images of that um, third section on the stairway is that figure that he looks back to and it's, I'm puzzled, I'm not sure if it's another soul or if it isn't an image of him, you know, at an earlier stage, but at every stage he's dealing with, how do you put it, with hope and despair, you know, that he, he carries that with him. You know, I, 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 just a sudden thought, when I, you know, it, it's got to be a different world for a fundamentalist who, who believes that he enters the church and Christ accepted him and that's it. Because that's not what Eliot's talking about here. Eliot's making it really clear that, you know, the dark night of the soul, the, the way we can confute, convince ourselves that what we're doing is really good without seeing that there's still something more that we don't see in Fred's terms that we're always involved in a mystery at every point of the journey at some point between these two worlds. That's consistent with David. God loved him the whole time, whether he was yeah. half long, oh Lord, or, or wow, the heavens are declaring your glory all over the place. Yeah. Delivered me from my enemies. This is a great era. It was... He, God loved him either way. He just admired him. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, yeah. I just always want to add to that because um, I I'm just wary, particularly after reading a poem like this. But I am generally it's 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 what I do. Just remember that that David was punished pretty severely by everything that happened afterwards. So, and it was clear that 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 um, David's sins were not going to go unanswered. You know that his struggles with his son and all that happened in his family in the break. So um, it, it's <laughs> it's not as if there wasn't a cost to the love he had for him. He, he wanted, this was the man he loved dearly. I mean, he chose him to be the, you know, be the first king. So, or, I mean, the king to succeed, succeed, um, succeed um, Saul. Okay, no other comments? We've got, sure, sorry, go ahead. This afternoon, Jeannie and I did go over that poem, line by line, stanza by stanza, <laughs> day by day. And frankly, I struggled to try to figure out what was being said, what it meant. And I didn't get very much out of it. Yeah. It's, it's difficult for me to try to put myself in a position of, uh, thinking that I know or thinking that I understand and try to fit it in there. And it's frustrating. <laughs> welcome, welcome to T.S. Eliot, Carl. Well, <clears throat> see, I... I, I there too at times. Yeah, but I mean, part of my response to that, Carl, it, and I hope you hear this fondly, is that because I put myself in the same category that for those of us who value the mind, the life of the mind, the intellect, and knowing things, it's got to be particularly hard when you don't know something and you, you know, and you realize what what I the re, one of the reasons I'm laughing about this and sort of enjoying your comment, and, and I don't want to forget this. I, what you said a while ago, Carl, I thought was so right on. Just so you know that, I mean, the way you put it, to me was just a faithful reading of the poem and what Eliot's doing in the way that you described drawing you into it and then leaving you in a position where you think you know something and you realize you don't. 
Um, remember what I said a while ago. I mean, I've, I've taught this poem for years and years. I haven't been in a classroom in, in academia in 10 years, so I've been out of touch with undergraduates. But I look back on my reading of this poem and, and, and embarrassed. You know, I, I haven't studied it deeply. It's, it's one of the books. I know the four quartets better, proof rock and the wasteland and some of it. We, we never did this much because it was such explicitly a religious poem. <coughs> so I never gave this the time. I'm doing it here because of the nature of our class, but I'm looking back at my earlier readings and I'm just ashamed. Um, there's a whole aspect of the dark night of the soul in this poem that I didn't see very clearly. Um, you, you ha when, you, when you read those contraries, you know, when he's setting up the oppositions the way he does, the, in, the positive hour or the infirm glory or the transitory, you know, when you look at those things, you, you, in some ways, I mean, Fred's right on. You're, you're at that still point while you're in a turning world. It's as if Christ is with you, um, but you're in a world in which you think you've got all the answers to things and relate to them that way because you do have answers, while at the same time, it's all twirling. It's, you're, it's, it, it's being lost. Um, that's our condition here. Um, it's one of the amazing things about Christ entering time, taking on our nature as a human being. Um, Anyway, let's let's go to Lear because I, I, it's really interesting to me because so much of this is going to bear on what he's doing. Um, I just want to very very briefly, <clears throat> if you got my notes, you know that I tried just summarizing a lot so that there's a lot there for anybody who wants to go back, but. <clears throat> But I want to go back to that point at which Lear and Gloucester meet on the way to Dover. So we talked about the importance of um, the heath um, because of its multiple implications. That the, the, the two that are most important in my mind are one, that the heath functions dramatically the way um, second settings do in all of so many of Shakespeare's plays. Um, and I, and for those of you who know me, I'm not, I don't know music. I wish I knew it better than I did, but I know something about the sonata form or forms like that. The, the, dramatically, the, the second setting functions like a counter theme in a sonata. The second setting gives Shakespeare a way of throwing a light, critiquing the first one. And the first one's always political, whether it's England or France or Italy it doesn't Navarre, it doesn't matter. Rome, and we've done Anthony and Cleopatra, um, Hamlet. When Shakespeare looks at a political world, he's showing that world in all of its machinations, with good like Brutus and Cassius trying to be good when they're plotting Caesar's death, or Hamlet when he's plotting the death of Claudius. There are all these things going on in a political world in which evil is being done, and people have to answer it. And in so many of these worlds, he introduces another setting. And in lots of them, it's called a green world, the forest. So in Love's Labor's Lost, or As You Like It, the women, and it's interesting, it's the women, go to a forest. 
because what the men are doing in the city is killing everybody. In um, 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 Midsummer Night's Dream, we did that play. The lovers are forced to go into the city because remember, if they stay in the city under the law, Hermia will be sentenced to death. She'll die. So they're forced to go to the forest. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so they have to flee into the force, and it's there that Oberon, you know, works his magic. So in all of these plays, so many of the plays, he has another setting. In As You, All's Well That Ends Well, remember, um, Helena had to go to Italy. It's another world, and there are machinations, but it something happens there that makes it possible for her to come back to France. In Merchant of Venice, which I think you all know fairly well, Portia had to come from Belmont. Belmont was that other beautiful mountain. Belmont was that other place we talked. Where does Belmont? I think it's a place of the soul. And I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here. If I could give a metaphor for Belmont, it would be this group. You guys have been carrying on this work for more than a few years, putting up with somebody that some people would have good reason to question whether you should put up with him. Something's been going on that hopefully is giving you new light on the world and made it possible for you to do things differently. Still point is that. The Heath is that world, except in the Heath, it's a world of suffering and anguish. It's a world of deprivation. All the worldly things are given up. It's where that community gathers where people are poor, impoverished, mistreated, abused. And it's from that perspective that Lear and Gloucester begin to see what they didn't do. So in so many of Shakespeare's plays, this, there's this second world that makes it possible um, to see things in the first one in a clear light. And let me try to make this a little bit clearer before I, um, before I go on. Um, remember that one of the, the, the basic question of Boethius' consolation is why does God allow evil men to prosper and good men to suffer. And Job's friends all accuse him of committing wrong and say he's receiving these punishments as a dessert, as due, warranted, uh, earned. Okay, He did something wrong. And Job argues pretty strenuously with them and says they're wrong. And finally God comes in to defend Job and says, Job's right, you guys are wrong. I want you to keep that in mind because most critics today say of King Lear that it's a, it's a meaningless play. It's a play affirming a nihilistic view of life, that nobody gets justice, that the suffering that Lear endures is too great, it's out of proportion. So the reading of the play is in those terms. And I'm, I'm arguing that I think they're like Job's friends, or they're like the people on the circumference of Boethius's circle. If you're judging things from that circle where the things that you value are success, money, if I do this, I'll get this, pride, wealth, power, pleasure, all those things. If you judge from that perspective, then you're going to see nothing but misery. Or if you're Job's friends, if you believe in God the way they do, you're going to see that what happens is a, a just dessert. So in both Job and in Boethius, we see that still point gives a different perspective. 
So what Shakespeare does in the Heath is make it possible for us to see things that we didn't see before. It's what makes it possible for Lear to say, this is in Act 4, Scene 6, we read it, this is when he and Gloucester meet. I, every inch a king, when I do stare, see how the subject quakes. I pardoned at man's life. What was thy cause, adultery? Thou shalt not die. Die for adultery? No. The wren goes to it. The small gilded, everything in nature commits adult Copulation goes on everywhere. Let copulation thrive, for Gloucester's bastard son was kinder to his father than my daughter's. So he goes on and on. Go on, 147. Art thou mad? A man may see how this world goes with no eyes, because he's seen that Gloucester is now blind. Look with thine ears. See how yon justice rails upon yon simple thief? Hark in thine ear. Change places and handy-dandy. Which is the justice? Which is the thief? We know that there are corrupt people in law enforcement. That some of the judges seated, handing down sentences, are worse than the people they condemn, they sentence. Um, and the creature run from the cur? There thou mightest behold the great image of authority, a dog's obeyed in office. Thou rascal beetle, hold thy bloody hand. Why dost thou lash that whore? Strip thy own back. Thou hotly lust to use her in that kind. Um, remember um, um, earlier when he, um, when he was in the heath and said, um, a, man, um, um, a man more sinned against than sinning. And then when he got to the heath, one of his first responses, um, take physic pomp, take medicine all you in power. I took too little care of all of this. He begins to see that the people who are poor around him are suffering from a failure on his part to do some things he should have. So the Heath is that is that place of renunciations where people begin to see who they really are and what they've not taken care of. Um, now, I'd like to go to the end quickly. You know that what happens is um, that Lear and Cordelia are captured. <coughs> Lear and Gloucester both get to the, to the beach at Dover. <coughs> Lear has been exhausted from his ordeal and is unconscious. I mean, absolutely worn out. It's an indi and I remember the line when um, Edgar said, watching Gloucester and Lear in that scene of madness, O matters and O matter and impertinency mix, reason in madness. He's looking at both men and realizing that both men have arrived at a wisdom that they didn't have when they thought they were sane. Uh, this is one of Plato's great themes, that there are four, four kinds of divine madnesses. They're from the gods. One is love, one is prophecy, um, one is um, um, rituals, and one is poetry. One is poetry. That the poet often speaks out of a knowledge that most people don't know. So the two men now have arrived people think they're mad and remember one of the understandings I think we're meant to take away from this is 
if your whole orientation to the world is suddenly changed because you realized you've seen the world the wrong way and you lose that orientation, you don't know what to do. We talked about this in Brothers Karamazov with Fyodor, you know, the changes that were taking place disoriented everybody. That it leaves people in a state of uncertainty and what, what appears to be a madness. So the two men have come to the beach, they're exhausted, Lear's here, he finally wakes up with Cordelia next to him. This is Act 4, Scene 7. And he says, Where have I been? Where am I? Fair daylight. This, this is Act 4, Scene 7, about 50. Fair daylight. I am mightily abused. I should even die with pity to see another thus. He's reached a point where to see somebody like this would undo him. This is not the same man he was when the play began. I know not what to say. I will not swear these are my hands. I mean, some people would take that as a sign of madness. I see. I feel this pinprick. What I were assured of my condition. Cordelia, oh, look upon me, sir, and hold your hand in benediction or me. You must not kneel. Kneel. Lear is kneeling to his daughter. He's been a king all of his life. He's kneeling. To me, one of the most touching scenes in literature. Lear. She says, um, don't kneel, Lear, pray do not mock me. I'm a very foolish, fond old man, for score and upward, not an hour more nor less. And to deal plainly, I fear I'm not in my perfect mind. Methinks I should know you, and know you this man, yet I am doubtful. For I am mainly ignorant what place this is, and all the skill I have remember not these garments. Nor do I, nor I know not where I did lodge last night. Do not laugh at me, for as I am a man, I think this lady to be my child, Cordelia. And so I am, I am. Be your tears wet. Yes, fate, I pray, weep not. If you have poison for me, I will drink it. I know you do not love me, for your sisters have, as I do remember, done me wrong. You have some cause. They have not. No cause. No cause. Am I in France, in your own kingdom, sir? Do not abuse me. Be comforted, good man. The great rage you see is killed in him, yet is a danger to make him eat, um, even or the time he has lost. Desire him to go in. Trouble him no more till further settling. Um, Lear, you must bear with me. Pray you now. Forget and forgive. I am old and foolish. This is a king who's been brought to this condition, reunited finally with the daughter that has loved him. Remember, she's come to France to rescue him. Now, I want to get to the end quickly because we've got some major questions to deal with. You know that Edgar produces the letter to Albany from um, um, Goneril showing her treachery um, to him and involving Edmund. And Edgar offers to step in his place to challenge him. So Albany produces the letter, so Goneril is uncovered. We learn at that point, um, Act 5, Scene 1, Reagan says, "'Tis most convenient, pray go in with us." Um, she, she's complaining about her something, she's not well. Goneril's already po po um, poisoned her. Um, Act 5, Scene 2, Cordelia and Lear are together, um, and Cordelia says, we're, this is about Act 5, Scene 3, line 2 or so, we are not the first 
who with best meaning have incurred the worst. The dominant image of this whole thing is that wheel turning up. All of the characters have spoken to it, being at the top, being at the bottom, Kent num numerous times saying, the worst is not yet to come. We are not the first who with best meaning have incurred the worst for the oppressed king. I am cast down. Myself could else um, outflown false fortunes frown, straight from Boethius. Shall we not see these daughters and these sisters? Lear, no, 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 come, let's away to prison. We two alone will sing like birds in the cage. When thou dost ask me blessing, I'll kneel down and ask thee forgiveness. So we'll live and pray and sing and tell old tales and laugh at gilded butterflies and hear poor rogues talk of court news. And we'll talk with them too, who loses, who wins, who's in, who's out. All the things of court, the, the political life, and take upon us the mystery of things as if we were God's spies. And we'll wear out in a walled prison, packs and sects of great ones that ebb and flow. It's as if he sees himself at the center of Boethius's wheel. So he can look at the circumference and watch all that stuff. So it seems like he's settled that this is the worst. Except we know it's to follow. Edward will come out and challenge Edmund. He will kill him. And right at that moment, um, Reagan's already feeling the poison. Um, when Edmund is dying, um, he says, this is Act 5, Scene 3. Um, um, Goneril says about line 96, to herself, if not, I'll never trust medicine. Um, Reagan says a few lines, my sickness grows. She doesn't know that she's poison. Um, Edgar defeats Edmund and about 240, line 240, Edmund suddenly has a moment where something strange happened to him. He says, because he, um, he learns that Goneril poisoned Reagan and stabbed herself because she didn't want to lose him. So both women die because of their attachment to him. Edmund says, yet Edmund was beloved, the one the other poisoned for my sake after slew herself. Even so, cover their faces. Edmund, I pant for life. Some good I mean to do, despite of mine own nature, quickly send. Says Quicket, Lear, and um, Cordelia, because remember, he sent them off to be executed. A moment later, Lear comes out holding Cordelia in his arms, um, 270 or so. Lear, how, how, how. Oh, you are men of stones. Had I your tongues and eyes, I'd use them um, so that heaven's vault should crack. She's gone forever. I know when one is dead and when one lives. She's dead as earth. Lend me a looking glass. If that her breath will mist or stain the stone, why then she lives. The men are astonished, stunned by the sight. This is all, so many of them have come there for Lear to save him, and this is what they're seeing. And Lear says, I may have saved her, now she's gone forever. Cordelia, Cordelia, stay a while. How? What is it thou sayest? Her voice was ever soft, gentle, and low. An excellent thing in um, woman. I killed a slave that was a hanging thee. He took the man's life when he went in. Um, go on over to the very end. This is where I want to go. Um, we learn that Edmund is dead. Albany, that's but a trifle. You lords and noble friends know our intent. What comfort to this great decay may come shall be applied 
For us we will resign during the life of his, this old majesty to him our absolute power. Um, you to your rights with boot and such addition as your honors have more than merited. All friends shall taste the wages of their virtues. Everybody will get what they deserve. All foes the cups of their deserving. OCC. Now suddenly he looks to Lear and this is the last scene we have of Lear. And my poor fool is hanged. I didn't mention this but I want to mention it now because I don't want to let it go because we won't get back on Lear. The fool enters the play when Cordelia leaves, the very beginning when she sets off to France, if you remember. He comes in only then. When they go to Dover to get Cordelia, the fool doesn't appear again. Symbolically, something is going on there that's really important. It's, it's one of the ways Shakespeare used gestures or stage action to speak. Okay, And you know that the fool always spoke the truth, but in a way that was palatable. And Lear at this point calls Cordelia his fool. And my poor fool is hanged. No, no, no life. Why should a dog, a horse, a rat have life? And thou no breath at all? Thou come no more. Never, 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 never. Pray you undo this button. Thank you, sir. They all think he's mad. So if he's saying, would you make me comfortable? Do you see this? Look on her, look on her, her lips. Look there, look there. He dies. Edgar, he faints. My lord, my lord. Break heart, I prithee break. Kent, who's been his loyal servant, says break. Leave this world, finally. Edgar, look up, my lord. Kent, vex not his ghost. Oh, let him pass. He hates him that would look upon the rack of this tough world. Stretch him out longer. He's gone indeed. The wonder is he hath endured so long he but usurped life. Albany says, bear them away. And then he says to both Kent and Edgar, friends of my soul, you too rule in this realm and the gourd state sustains. So instead of Lear taking up his throne again, it's going to pass to those two men. Kent, Kent says, well, I have a journey, sir, shortly to go. My master calls me. I must not. I must say no. I must not say no. So Kent's going. Edgar, the way to this sad time, we must obey. Speak what we feel, not what we ought to say. The oldest has borne most. We that are young shall never see so much nor live so long. Now I've got several major questions. We've been hanging on this for a couple of weeks, so let me try to get to them all. First of, there's. First, anybody have a response to Edmund saying, I pant for life, some good I mean to do? Anybody want to comment on that? You don't have to. I'm going to come back to it, but just any quick, just leave it. I'll come back. My, my real question, what for me is the center and the fine point of the whole climax um, of the ending. When Lear says, never, never, he'll never see her again, pray you this button, thank you, sir. Do you see this? Now remember, this play has been fundamentally about seeing. We're back in Dante's Purgatory. The proud, the envious, um, the wrathful. The proud had heavy boulders. They had to work to see. 
because they were blind in life. They put themselves too much above people and missed a lot. The envious have their eyes wired shut. They rejected the good, the good's taken away. The wrathful are in clouds of smoke. They have to learn to see inwardly. All of that symbolically is taking place on the heath. Everybody there is learning to see. And it leads to um, Edgar's comment, um, reason in madness. So the values of the play have been inverted. And here at the end, Lear says, look on her, look her lips, look there. Do you see this? Here's my question. What does he see? Or does he see anything? Is he mad? The doctor thinks he's, I think, exhausted and worn out and somewhat mad. Does he see something or not? Fred, go ahead. You got... Don't have your audio. Sorry about that. No, good. I think at this point he sees the truth. He's he's when he's looking at Cordelia, he realizes that she was the one and only daughter that truly loved him for all the right reasons. And you know, you 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 mentioned the uh, the jester or the fool has left the play, and for me the the whole point of the fool was trying to to tell Lear what he wasn't seeing, that the things that he was blind to. And at this point, he had lost his blindness. He was seeing the truth. So there was no role remaining for the just, for the fool to, to play. And in, and, and in the end, when he says, just before he dies, when he says, look there, look there, what he's trying to do is to make sure that those who remain um, Edgar, Albany, and Kent, I think, although Kent slept, is that see what, you know, see what I couldn't see until now and, and learn from that, that, you know, that, that, that love is, is what's important, true love for what it is, and not all of the things that I thought were important, power, ego, prestige, all of those things. So to me, in the end, Lear sees what's true, and he's trying to make sure that the others around him, before he dies, sees that as well. Yeah. Is anybody else? Is is what he sees an abstraction? I mean, um, Fred used the word. He sees the truth. He sees what other. I don't see him trying to teach anybody there. He, I think he's so overcome. Um, but is what he sees an abstraction? Is there nothing concrete? Is what? Let me put it differently. Is what he sees a tr- is a, is it a truth in his mind? She loved me, and I didn't see it. And now I do see it. Is it an abstraction in his head, or is he actually seeing something before him that the other people don't see? Francis. Where are you on this? Don't look at him. No response. <laughs> Jeannie, Jeannie, what do you, what's, does he, 
What do you think? Does he see? Is it just an idea in his head, or does he see something? Because he, he it's sort of, look there, look there. Do you see this? What does he see? I, I don't know. I can't. I can't imagine any other than what Fred said. I I would agree with what he said about you know the truth that Lear has finally realized the truth about love and his daughter Cordelia being the one who truly loved him, but. No, I, I don't, I can't think of anything concrete that he's seeing. Although he's saying, look there, look there. Yeah, yeah he is. It's not an, um, Karen, any well, thoughts? He might think he sees her breathing. Say again? He might think he sees her breathing, like her lips are moving. What if she weren't breathing? Let's just say because there's no evidence that she is, but I mean, it may be, but what if she isn't? What's he see? Or does he see anything? You guys aren't mad enough. or You're obviously not as mad as I am. Not as mad as I am. Let me go on record, though. I don't think he sees in the terms of what we define sight as. Sight as is the perception of the stimulation of a certain range of frequencies. Yeah. Optics. Right. right. He does not have the capability to do that. I don't think, as Mark would say if he were here, he didn't grow one out of his belly button. <laughs> sorry, Mark is he, not here. Gone. He doesn't see as we do. He still has... Um, from an optical standpoint, blinders on. He senses it. I go that far. Senses what? It. What's that? It. He senses what he says he sees. And can you put a name to that? It's spiritual. It's something that has been deduced from what has happened. It's using other senses than what we associate with eyes and objects yeah. or other capabilities. Barbara, go ahead. Do you have something? I wonder if he sees what all of his selfishness has caused. He's looking at his dead daughter or dying daughter and he thinks if I had not acted the way I did, this wouldn't have happened. The reason I have trouble with that is, you know, when Lear wakes up and says, where am I? I don't even know my hands. The guilt is past. I mean, there, you know, he kneels down to her. He asks for forgiveness. She says she loves him. He says, you have a cause. By the way, those words are the same words um, at the end of Othello. When he says the cause, the cause. We talked about that then. Remember when Desdemona dies and everybody knows she's dead. The nurse knows she's dead. And then suddenly we hear this voice. And we're left with this question. And, and, and somebody says, who did this? And she says, nobody, I myself did. It's as if she's speaking. Either she's on her last breath or she was dead and recovered. Or... She's speaking from the next life, and we don't know. But what she does is take everything on herself. Here we've got a similar moment. Lear has experienced his guilt. When he comes to the beach, there's that, it's a 
cathartic moment. It's a freedom for both of them. One of the questions that I want to ask is, is Cordelia changed at this point? Lear clearly is, but at that point where he says, when she says, we are not the first who've um, experienced the worst of things, she's acknowledging this is awful, and she'll, she says, shall we not see these daughters and these sisters? That is, she's looking forward to worse things because they've got to confront their persecutors. Lear says, no, 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 come let's away to prison. I think the guilt is past. Everything that happened in that earlier scene shows Lear aware of his failings and Cordelia forgiving him and um, Lear, upon such sacrifices more Cordelia, the gods themselves have thrown incense. Have I caught thee? He that parts us shall bring a brand from heaven and fire us like foxes. It's as if in Lear's mind they've passed through what he calls a, a wheel of fire. They've been purged of all these horrors that have gone before them, brought them to this point. Um, so I, my, in my, my own mind, I don't, I don't think at this point he's carrying guilt. Either he's mad or I think he sees something, but I'll, um, anybody else? Um, Jolie, are you, or Sue, I, you guys haven't picked up the question. Either one of you guys have a comment on this? Not yet. I just so far I'm just kind of thinking divine understanding of some sort. Um, that's all I can figure out. Sue, do you have a thought? No, not on this. Okay, I'm going to go out on a limb where I've been so often before, so you shouldn't be surprised. I think he sees, I think he sees Cordelia in the next life. I think what Carl was saying about a spiritual vision that, and his madness, that this is a madness the world doesn't understand, that the world too defines itself in the way we've been talking about. Except, I, I mean, I, I, that's the point I've been, you know, when we've done Anthony and Cleopatra, when she took her life at the end, or, or Othello, or Hamlet, in every one of those plays, what happens at the end, and this is, a, this is from a Christian worldview, what happens at the end is that we're taken to a threshold where the hero, Othello, Hamlet, Anthony, Cleopatra, here it's Lear, are in a state that the world would understand as madness um, because they've lost every orientation to the world. It's, it's exactly what Eliot's talking about in... Uh, Ash Wednesday, we were talking about earlier about that still point pointing both ways, you know, the infirm glory of the positive hour, um, the veritable truth, it's in a transitory moment, that there may be those fleeting moments where for a moment something happens, but in the world it's gone. Here at the end, Lear's there. He's reunited with his daughter, the two have been reunited, it's been a painful experience for both of them, but here he loses her. And it seems to me there's only two conclusions. One is she's dead, because it, it's fairly clear she's dead. Um, and he sees nothing, and he's hallucinating. Or, because of his spiritual ordeal, the suffering that he's gone through, 
he's he's in a position to see something spiritually that others don't have. Um, so, um, so why do you think? Go ahead. Go ahead. Specifically, to look at her lips. If he's seeing her, he might know, in the next world because he, she may be breathing. You know, it's just. I think. I think. Wait. Wait. Let me. Let me. Let me just. Wait. Go ahead. Think of how we often portray our dreams. I saw this in my dreams. In that sense, you are seeing because you're you're building a picture as if you would see it optically. And that's along the, the, the lines of vision or other life. Yeah. Yeah, one of the problems is I mean truly I mean, you're just we're touching on a difficult area here is is um, in one case, we recognize that a, a dream vision or something else like that, a hallucination, is subjective. It has no objective basis in reality. You can have nightmares. You can see. Also, you can think you saw something when you didn't. There's also things that can be seen that have an objective existence. All the prophets tell us of things that. Um, um, we believe have an objective existence. God is pointing them to us. In one case, there's an objectivity to things. In another, there isn't. And one of the issues here is this question whether what he sees is real or not. Um, you know, lots of people thought Christ was just a prophet. Lots of people believe he's God. There's a big difference between saying one or the other, um, whether there's an objective basis for either one of them. Let me ask this. I mean, it, it, um, I'm going to do this quickly because I want <coughs> to get to two of the major questions that I've, I've been putting to you guys for a couple of weeks. Um, are there any figures who are Christ-like in what they do? If so, who are they? Who are like Christ? Karen, go ahead. Um, I think Kent is. Because he's a servant. And he's loyal. And he looks for the good in people. Yep. Yeah, and he puts his life at risk often. He, um, who else? Fred, did you have something? Your audio's not on. Did you? I, I think perhaps Edgar, in a sense that you, you see him wrongfully accused. Um, suffers and but you know in in the end I think plays a, a role in Lear and uh, Gloucester's ultimate ability to see the truth mm -hmm. who else and, you know yeah you know, removes the, the blindness that's there 
Who else? Cordelia. Let me t Cordelia, the King of France at the beginning, Gloucester's or Cornwall's servant, who actually turns on his master because his master's violating a natural law. Um, Cordelia, Edgar, Kent. Um, The servant. Am I forgetting somebody? Let me let me go to this question then, because it was one of the pressing questions I've been putting before you for a couple of weeks. Is this a Christian play or not? There's two related questions here. Let me put them both out, and let, we can take one at a time. Um, Shakespeare's writing on the threshold of the modern world. Every one of his plays is amazing at the end because of something like a Christian action. Anthony and Cleopatra um, discover a love that the Roman world does not know. This is just before Christ comes into the world. I remember there's that scene where the um, Anthony's God is leaving him, Hercules. And there are all those withdrawals. Um, what's his servant's name that leaves him? Um, God bless who leaves him and then mourns and um, one of the when one of Cleopatra's um, Cleopatra takes her life one of um, her servants dies from a wound of love um, Anthony's servant cannot take his life he's called Eros he takes his own life there's this self-sacrificing love taking place everywhere everywhere at the end so many of his tragedies end with something happening that appears one way to the secular world. This is somebody dying. And yet when you look at it with eyes, like we're talking about tonight, with the kind of eyes we're talking about tonight, you see that there's, there may be something else going on here. And Shakespeare's presenting these things to what has increasingly become a non-Christian secular world, but in ways that suggest something Christian. So, um, the two questions I have are, is, is this a Christian play? But I want to connect that to, with the other question. Why did he set this back nine centuries before Christianity? He takes an actual king, he changes the story, it didn't unfold this way. It's close, just the way he did Hamlet. Hamlet's a real prince. But he worked, he, he took a real prince, but did things differently with it. So there are two related questions. One is, is this a Christian play or not? How would you guys answer that? Sue, are you... Can you jump in here at this? Do you have a thought? Because this, this is one of the questions you had about Shakespeare's treatment of history, so... To me, I guess, and I'm struggling with this a bit now, it's this. It says Christian in the way that Homer was Christian. It it pre it it hmm. predicts Christ before Christ. It shows Christian values. Um, it's a question of what you see. So there are certainly Christian aspects of it, and I think. Shakespeare was using pre-Christian world in a way to show Christian values. That's that's the best I can do in terms of 
it being Christian. I, th I think it shows the Christian values. It shows that in a, in a pre-Christian setting. Let me turn the question another way. So if, if, if there's a value to a Christian world, is it fair to say that Christians would find a strength in what they're seeing? What's the value of a play like this to a non-Christian world, to a secular world, or to a world that's becoming increasingly humanist? Because that's what's happening at Shakespeare's time. If you, I mean, all the historians, major historians say the same thing. That, um, that we've, our, our world has been divided into three periods. Um, the middle period, the Middle Ages, was theocentric, God-oriented. The modern world... Um, marked with the scientific revolution and the and the Protestant Reformation, is anthropocentric. It's man-centered. It's humanist. And Shakespeare's aware of all of this in a in a way that is, is amazing. What would be the value of a play like this for a non-Christian audience? Barbara, did you have a thought? Well, it teaches Christian principles without Christ having been there. Um, especially about love. Can you make um, that concrete? Well, I don't know if I can. Um, I was thinking that you can't legislate morality. You, you can't legislate. I mean, you can make it a law, but you can't change the inside of people um, because of the law. You can't legislate love. And um, there's a lot in here about love for love's sake and not because you were getting something back for it. That's the best I got. Let me go back to the question that I asked at the very beginning when, we, when I, um, I used Plato's Republic to take off. Can you identify characters in this play who live believing that there is a law to nature and act that way? And other characters who believe that there is no law to nature and they can do whatever they want. Can you identify people in either one of those groups? Because, because we're, we're not in a Christian world. They don't believe in a Christian God. So they're either, they either believe that there's a law in nature and they're following it, or they believe that there's no law in nature and they can do whatever they want. If they have the power to do it, they will make their own laws. So you have the two sisters um, who make their own laws. The Edmund wants to make his own law. Cornwall. Um, all the bad guys want to make their own clothes. And then you have, on the other hand, the people who do what appears to their conscience tells them to do. It's Edgar and Kent and Gloucester yeah. uh, and, and on and on. Yeah. And so it does come out to um, opposing forces. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and what it does is confirm um, the belief that there is a natural law and if the laws that men made were in accord with it you can legislate 
you can help people become better, you know, with a, with a well-ruled, with a real, well-ruled polity. But Fred, go ahead. There's, there's a lot of questions on the table at this point, <laughs> yes. so I'm I'm gonna try to answer as many of them as I can, but I I'm probably gonna miss a few. But if if, if I look on the world in Shakespeare's time, there was a lot of conflict. I mean, Mary and, and Elizabeth the first had just had a major power struggle. Elizabeth Elizabeth won it, but then she died. Uh, if I remember history correctly, King James the fourth of Scotland became King James the first of England, mm -hmm. and he was trying uh, to bring England and Scotland back together again. But the Scots and the English both were firmly against it. And it was it was it was a power struggle. Um, all all of the things that that we see in Lear and and are identified brought out in in Boethius Consolation of Philosophy, which I'm absolutely <laughs> convinced that Shakespeare must have known by heart. Mm, that's so true. It's true. I believe he went back to the ancient world to point out the fact that even then. This focus on on power, on wealth, on ego, um, and and misdirected love was a failure, and in, in in his attempt not to alienate his audience, which was both English and Scots and maybe Europe in general, he tried to point back to a future pre-Christian situation where. Um, all of the focus was probably similar to what was going on in his time and, and how, how greatly it failed. And even, even in the pre-Christian world, ultimately there were those who recognized what was truly important and what wasn't. And I think he was using that to try to tell the people in his time that you're, you're lost and you need to refocus. And you know, it was it was it was relevant to do that in, in the pre-Christian world because even they were able to see the light, yeah. even if they had Christ as a reference. Yeah. Um, and and I think there were I think I think the play in my mind was clearly Christian, and there were there were people who struggled with focusing on the wrong things, Lear, Gloucester. And there were there were people who recognized the real things, uh, Cordelia, um, Kent, and Edgar. Yep. And so yep. I think I think Shakespeare was using the, the ancient the ancient time to point out to the people in his time that even then, even before they had Christ, there there was something there that made people realize what was real and, and what wasn't. Yeah. And so what's wrong with you guys? I mean you have you have Christ now. Yeah, right. You still can't you still can't get it right. So anyway, that's that's my two cents worth. No, it's more than two cents. I I'm sorry Marcy's not here because the word that I would have just thrown in there is is I mean, I'm all I'm doing is is taking what you're doing and adding the word logos that the logos was always there the ancient world knew it even even if they didn't see christ it was let me ask all of you guys this it goes back to the the 
question I asked a minute ago and the way Barbara set it up. Ken and Edgar both act for good consistently. So Shakespeare is showing that there are these two pagans who can act for good, even though Christ isn't around then. Call it the Logos, whatever. There's this natural good, this inherent good. And they're bound by it. Kent has to be faithful, or he wouldn't be Kent. Just as Barbara said, Ed, or uh, Cordelia, or I mean, uh, Goneril, Reagan, Edmund, there are those lines that I quoted where each one of them, when Cornwall's line to me is perfect when he says, I don't need to wait for justice, I'm going to make justice right now, and he takes out Gloucester's eyes. That is, he can make justice whatever he wants because he has the power. Is that any less true today with politicians? I don't want anybody to name names here, but but here's my question. What's the difference between, I don't want to, I shouldn't have said that, I don't want to get a fire going here. I, I'm trusting that we all see it, that it's in front of us. It, it'll be here, it was there, it's here, it'll be here tomorrow. What's the difference between Kent and Edgar? Kent says, or Edgar says, when, when, when things are affirmed again, finally, the gods are just and make instrument of our pleasant vices. That's Edgar. Kent says, it is the stars, when he gets the news that France has returned. Shakespeare's too exact with characters. He knows exactly what he's doing. Cordelia's always Cordelia. Kent's Kent. Edgar's Edgar. Edmund's Edmund. All of them. The one surprise is Edmund. I, I don't want to lose a chance to get this. It seems to me that that's only one more affirmation of a Christian spirit. It's as if a grace is given at the end. Remember at the very beginning of um, Dante's Purgatorio, in the anti-purgatory, we met several characters who, who, who changed at the very end, the last instant of their life, and it was enough for God to work on. In his dying breath, Kent says, um, they love me. I pant for life. I mean to do some good. It's stunning. Critics can't make sense of that. A critical, most critics are going to say, makes no sense. Shakespeare failed as an artist. I don't think so. I think he's showing that God, I mean, Boethius, our faith, that God can do things that we don't always understand. That's what a grace is. Um, so all these strange things happen, but here, here at the end, um, Kent and Edgar are, are left to rule. Albany says, it's in your hands, and Kent says, no, I have a voyage. It seems fairly clear that Kent's going to go on a pilgrimage, that he's locked, I, this, he's an extraordinary man. My question is, what do we do with those two men? At the end, Kent says, I've got to go on a pilgrimage. He loved Lear. Karen was right on. He was absolutely faithful to his king. Never wavered. He was in the stocks. He didn't complain. He says, my fortune will turn. He's a good, good man. Um, but when he gets the news about France returning, he says, it is the stars. Edgar says, um, in, in response to a good happening, the gods are just and make instruments of our pleasant vices. What's the difference between those two men? Shakespeare's brilliant. He knows human character. He knows political regimes. He knows the motives of people. He is so amazingly clear about graces. Remember in Winter's Tale when Antigonus took the babe to an island and he had that dream from Hermione. It goes to Carl's point. It was a dream, 
but it's a dream we know that was actually verified by events. That that dream was real. It was, it was based in an objective truth. Shakespeare knew spiritual realities. In the next play that we're going to read, Pericles, Pericles is going to have a mystical vision. It's the only character, I've told you this before, it's the only character in all of literature that I know of who actually has a mystical vision. So he was fully aware of graces, spiritual realities. He brings them into his plays. So he knew human character. He knew the limits of people. In Lear, it seems to me, he's showing um, the suffering that sometimes has to be endured to answer a man's pride. So the people who say that Lear's suffering was out of proportion to his sins, I don't think see him at all. Um, very often, remember this is Flannery O'Connor too, very often the violence that happens to men can be a grace if they see it that way. One of the ways of looking at what happened to Lear is that it's a severe mercy that it answers. Remember, he's a king. What he did affected a whole country. It's the same thing with a father in his family. What a father does affects his whole family. So the suffering in Gloucester, Lear, the suffering very often answers a pride whose depths we don't see. So he knew human character or he could not have done the great variety of plays that he did. What's the difference between Kent and Edgar, and why does it matter? Is, can you speak up, Doc? Kent is absolutely assertive. Can you hear, can you hear Suzanne? Not can you speak up, Doc? Because Kent is, from beginning to end, a servant. Um, and Edgar is, from beginning to end, a son, a son who serves, but a son. Seems to me that makes a difference. The sonship, because, did everybody hear that? I mean, Doc is acknowledging that you can't separate what Edgar does from his being a son. Everything he does is because he's a son and Edgar's a servant. What's Kent. the what's the difference? Sorry, Kent is a servant. Yeah, what's the difference? But but in their outlook towards the world, is it just because one's a son and one's not? A, one's a servant. Remember, Kent says it is the stars. Edgar says the gods are just and make instrument of our pleasant vices. Sue, is that you? Go ahead. It is. I, I'm not. I'm not confident about this at all, but it seems to me that in the stars we're saying there's a certain, um, I don't want to use the word luck exactly, but there's, but, but what Edgar says is there's a natural law and the gods have intervened to bring justice with that natural law. Whereas, I don't know, Kent maybe isn't, appealing to that. He's appealing to some higher thing that happens, but it's more like luck. Or determinism. It's in the stars. Yeah. 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 I, it's really interesting. It seems to me, if I were to <coughs> if I were to distinction, I'd say Kent is probably one of the finest examples of stoicism. Tough. He, he will not 
he will not dairy. The rectitude of his will is so great. He will stay the course. Edgar has to go up and down. He's a son. He, he's more involved in his all that happens with his father. You know, the play, the therapy that he has to practice to get his father to that cliff to go off. The gods are just. He's more like a pre-Christian, a pagan believer in the gods, that somehow the gods are active in some way. Um, there's a greater emotional um, openness to what happens and an involvement with his emotions in what happens. He's on... Um, anyway, I'm only pointing this out. I mean, only raising the question because I'm so amazed at what, Kate, what Shakespeare's doing with his delineation of character that, you know, Gloucester's so different from Lear, Cordelia, um, all of them are so different and they're so well depicted. Just sometimes in just a few lines, he makes so clear something about a character. Um, let me just add one thought because we're almost uh, we're out of time. Fred, you uh, go ahead and just give me one second. It, se it seems to me one of the things he's doing going back historically in time, I don't, I don't know if this will add to what you're saying, Fred, or some of the comments you've made, Sue, but it seems to me one of the values of going back historically the way he did with so many plays, Julius Caesar, Anthony and Cleopatra, Coriolanus, uh, or Merchant of Venice in the Greek world, time of Athens, um, here in Lear, is it's pretty much along the lines of what Fred was saying. I don't think he's catechetical. I, even though there's a catechetical aspect, he's a poet at, at his heart. But one of the things he does in his poetry is to teach us um, or to help us be careful of reading the world with a literal historical viewpoint. I'm sorry, Mark's not here. It's a, it's a curb against being too literalist. You know, literally, this is what happened. Because so often we make our judgments based on appearances. What's right in front of us, that literally we see. It's one of the aims I've had in this whole thing since we began. Um, the poetry always shows us there's more going on than we see. And so much of it depends on how well we love or how open we are. If we're not open, that's what we'll see. Particularly to the rational mind. The rational mind will be convinced this is what... Hamlet, Lear, um, Leontes, all of them were great rationalists. Oedipus Rex. You know, when you, when you, when you value the mind and the ability of the mind to see something, you're more and more convinced that it's that way. Lear was that way, so was Gloucester. Gloucester was glib about it. One of the things we've been experiencing in so many of these plays is there is a wisdom that people come to because they learn to see that reality is multi-leveled, that lots is going on that we don't see, particularly involving the gods. So one of the values of going back is that it rubs against this tendency to be too literal, you know, to, to, to historical to say this is what it meant, this is what happened. When the poet can show us there was more going on in that than we saw. And in each of Shakespeare's plays he's showing us that there, there was this great God of mercy and love at work during those periods 
when the people, particularly the rulers, could not see those other dimensions of meaning. Um, Fred, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, this may be one of those f orbital kindness of thoughts, but um, is it? You know, there was a lot of religious conflict going on in Shakespeare's time uh, between sure. Catholicism and you know whatever whatever we want to call Henry VIII's version of religion. Yeah, and I don't know really Protestant is the right word or not, yeah. but whatever that was, there was there was a lot of conflict and persecution of the Catholics at that point, as, at least as I understand the history of yeah, it. Yeah. And I wonder if we if that's what the difference really is between Kent and and Edgar is is you know, there's a, a different perspective between those two in terms of you know, stars versus natural law. And I just I just wonder if that was kind of a Shakespeare re reflecting on that religious conflict that was going on in his time. Fred, my, my sense of the difference is pretty much as I said it. I, to me, it, um, Kent is an example of, perfect example of what you were talking about earlier in your earlier statement when in the pre-Christian world there were Stoics who believed that there was this natural law and um, a goodness and you had to learn to control yourself and you know stay the course and um, Edgar is a little bit different for different circumstances. I, I'm, I'm not sure that to me is the basic difference that Shakespeare, I, I think the point that you made earlier in my mind goes directly to the question how they differ because Shakespeare's showing in both cases before a Christian world that there are two ways of seeing the natural law, um, two, diff very, two, different, very two very different stances on it and yet both of them acknowledge that there is a natural law in nature and both of them see it differently, whether it's in terms of determinisms or gods. But both of them differ from those people in power, um, Goneril, Reagan, Edmund, you know, even Lear and Gloucester in the beginning when they abuse their power. There is a natural law. It's written on our conscience. That's what Paul says. It's there in every, every single human being. Either you deny it and go against it, or... You live it, and and with both of those characters, he's showing two different ways of, I think, living it. Um, one of the other, I mean, just to complicate the question that you're asking, you know, remember when we did Milton, and we looked at the um, battles between the the um, the Scots Presbyterians and the English Anglicans, and you know, the Episcopalians, and the um, they overthrew the king because they wanted an Episcopal um, or Presbyterian form of government. So England was trying to force the Scots t to one religious belief. When the Scots were, when the Presbyterians were in power, they wanted to force the English to their beliefs. So what you're describing was absolutely true. I mean, to the point, the religious, you know, Mary made a, or Elizabeth made a compromise between the the um, high Anglicans and the Puritans, because the Puritans were saying, were saying, get rid of robes, get rid of vestments. These are all leftovers from a Catholic world. Everything England was doing was to get rid of a Catholic world. And to do that, they had to persecute the Puritans, the Presbyterians, 
because they all had different beliefs. So there were lots of religious factions at war with each other during Shakespeare's time. It wasn't just between whatever you want to call it, the high Protestant Church of Henry or, you know, whatever Elizabeth would have called it. Um, um, different religions wanted power because they believed what the beliefs that they had were right. Um, <laughs> the one thing they agreed on was that Catholicism was wrong, no matter what you said about it. It was, um, but they were all killing each other because they, so the conflicts were deep. I, I think Shakespeare's just, he knows about them, but I think he's going to these amazing truths. I mean, between Kent and, and um, Edgar, the differences are really settled, but both of them affirm that there is this natural law in man in different ways. They're both good men, really good men. Um, there's a great deal of suffering that goes on in Lear. There's a lot going on in T.S. Eliot's Ash Wednesday that, that I, I, I just love Carl's way of putting it, that it, it, you know, it, it draws you into to find out where you are, that there's this um, dark night of the soul, that it's a part of our condition. It's more especially there in Lent, you know, when the words that we use because we think we're being Christian we use without knowing very often we're doing it to escape this darkness that we're in this in-between world um, and it's more particularly true in Lent where we're trying to deny ourselves in the world so and I, I think what happens in Lear and I don't I don't think I'm I don't I don't think um, Fred is you know, overstating the case that 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 still point world is is um, so much a part of Shakespeare's way of seeing the world, and it I think it's one of the reasons it's one of the things that made him so capable of rendering the world both in its human condition and its transcendent condition. Um, I don't I don't think a modern writer has done it as well as as he has. He and Dante own the world in that in that one respect. So any last thoughts before we stop for the night? We're doing Pericles. I think we should it's I don't think it's a hard play. It's very simple. Um, we should be able to do it. Lear's Lear's tough. Pericles the plot of Pericles is pretty simple. Anyway, I I'm allowing two weeks. If we need a third week we'll do it. And then what I'd like to do is Flannery O'Connor's The Violent Big Bared Away. Just one, just one. It's a short novel. We won't do anything more. It'll be that one short novel. Um, it's very prophetic, very prophetic, and it's modern. It's in our world. It looks directly in our world. She grew up in the South. She was surrounded by a fundamentalist Protestant South, a world, a culture. It's one of her greatest works. So we'll do Pericles, the violent bared away. That's that's right out of Matthew, the violent bared away. And then if everybody's okay, we'll do uh, Tolkien. Which one? What am I am I leaving out something, Francis? Oh, 
Uh, why? What we're gonna do? No, with I don't. We will. I mean, it's there for those of you who want to read it. It's it's a collection of stories. We're just gonna do the violent beard away. Um, we'll just do one. You guys can. You've got Planner O'Connor, and I. Some of you have enjoyed her. You can do the Wise Blood. I think it's a good story, but I think the violent beard away is her best story, and we'll do that. If any of you are looking for some good entertainment and you haven't seen the films, the Lord of the Rings. Watch the trilogy. Um, um, the books are better. You get that from the authority. Jeannie, do you agree? You're shaking your head? You like them both? Yeah. Okay. You guys have a good Lent. A genuinely good Lent. Um, let, this, let these works sink into you. Let it be so for all of us. This is... Uh, a week of joy, so help us all to bring a spirit of joy to what we do in our sufferings, whatever things we're giving up, okay? Amen. Amen, okay. Have a good week. You guys all have a good week. Bye. Bye.